Martin Luther once said, to try and deny the Trinity endangers your salvation. To try and comprehend the Trinity endangers your sanity. Well, today is Trinity Sunday, and our text, the one just read from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, shows us the glory of the Trinity in a way which I trust is simple and easy to grasp. I hope we can gain some comprehension, leave your sanity intact. There really are sort of two basic ways you can approach thinking about the Trinity. One way is to think about the life of God as it is in Himself, without any reference to His creatures or His outward works. Right? We could meditate on the relationship between the Father and the Son, and the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and the communion and the nature of that relationship in the Godhead itself. And this is a wonderful thing, because God is to be our chief occupation. But it's a difficult route to go down. The second way is to try and see the Holy Trinity in His outward works, in His deeds. And that's what we're going to do here today. In this text, we see the triune God on display in His actions for your salvation. And so here, we, as Calvin used to put it, contemplate God in His works. This is, I think, the most accessible way to sort of get a grasp of the Holy Trinity and what the Christian faith means by it. So we'll make three points. The work of the Spirit, and then the Son, and then the Father. So first, the Spirit. At the the end of uh, the chapter 2, the chapter just prior to our text, we're told that many had believed in Jesus because of the works, the signs he did. And yet this is something less than saving trust, saving faith. We're told at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men and he knew what was in man. So Jesus is, if you will, skeptical of these believers. And it's with that background, the background of a belief based on signs and the nature of people who believe in that manner, that we read in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man. Just a man. We're just, we were just told Jesus is not entrusting himself to man because he knows what's in man. And then chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a member of the the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And so he's a man of some learning and some public notoriety. He comes to Jesus at night, perhaps because that's the best time for a leisurely conversation, perhaps because Jesus is not the type of folk that Nicodemus hangs out with. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, It's a respectful greeting because Jesus, as the Gospels make clear, has no formal rabbinical training. But he's kicking up a lot of dust as an itinerant rabbi. 
He says, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus gets this connection between the signs and Jesus' divine teaching mission. But he doesn't yet grasp who this Jesus is. Nor does he grasp his own condition. So he's lacking understanding. But he's not, he is not, Nicodemus, blinded by prejudice as others were. It's important when sharing the gospel that we assess exactly where people are coming from, right? People are not one-size-fits-all realities. We have to do what Jesus does here. He takes the actual flesh-and-blood person in front of him as unique and not as fitting some pre-fashioned mold. Yes, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Yes, Nicodemus is questioning Jesus. But he's not openly hostile. If anything, he's mildly interested. Or maybe a little more than that. Nevertheless, Nicodemus does not know what he is wading into here. Like so many people in the Gospels who encounter Jesus. For him, for Nicodemus, this is simply a discussion between two rabbis. I'm a rabbi. You're a rabbi. You've been doing these wonderful signs. I'd like to have a talk with you. And Jesus, never one for small talk, dispenses with the preliminaries. He doesn't say to Nicodemus, thanks for the compliment. I'm glad you appreciate the miracles. In verse 3, he he starts with, I tell you the truth. So Nicodemus comes and essentially compliments him. No one, no one could do the signs you do unless you were from God. And Jesus responds with, Amen, Amen. Solemnly I say to you. Conversations, you may have noticed this, with this Jesus are never casual chats. Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, hey, sit down, yeah. I'll tell you about the miracle. Let me recap today's miracles for you, Nicodemus. We can go over this. He ups the ante all the time. They're asymmetrical, these conversations. Right? The text says that Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi. Right? And then the text says, and Jesus said, Amen, Amen. Verily, verily, I tell you the truth. They're not speaking to one another as equals. And so Jesus turns these simple requests into moments of crisis and personal decision. He presses his claims upon men. He says, oh, you like the signs. Signs are signs of the kingdom, Nicodemus. They're about new creation. They're about resurrection. They're about eschatological life. They point to your need. To be remade, so Jesus says solemnly, no one can see the kingdom of God. He changes the topic. Unless he is born again. You want to be a miracle mongerer? You have to remember that the signs point to the new creation. No one can see the kingdom of God, Jesus tells him, unless he's born again. Or essentially equivalent, born from above. And so the topic, critically, is birth. Birth status, 
was the single all-important factor in the ancient world in determining a person's honor and their social standing. It's very hard for us to grasp this today in, in, a, in a democratic sort of individualistic culture. So birth status is crucial, and Nicodemus is a man who has attained the status of one well-born, and to be born over again, however unthinkable that event would be, would alter one's status in a fundamental way. A new status, a new identity derives from a new birth. And so Jesus is going sort of after the jugular here. He says, deducing that I'm a teacher from God because of the signs is woefully inadequate. Yes, I know the masses like miracles, but the masses keep misunderstanding the miracles. And being a devout adherent of the law and a respected teacher yourself, that's utterly impotent in the face of what man is. So what's required, Nicodemus, is nothing less radical than a new birth, a new identity, a new status, a new life. And without such a rebirth, you're not going to be able to even see, Jesus says, the kingdom of God. The dynamic reign of God among his people. It's all just going to sound like gibberish to you. Now, Nicodemus, he would have thought of the kingdom of God as a future reality at the end of the age in which all righteous Jews would enter and share. And yet Jesus talks to him about a kingdom which can be entered now. So not only does Jesus change the subject, refer to this odd thing about rebirth, he changes Nicodemus's, or he slides the conception of the kingdom away from what Nicodemus is used to. So in verse 4, you can see Nicodemus is bewildered. And you can sympathize with him. I mean, I really sympathize with Nicodemus. It seems basic to Jesus' teaching method to disorient. I hope you've noticed that in the Gospels. I don't have time to do this today, but I would love to at some point talk about Jesus' teaching methodology. He overturns every single teaching cliche I've ever heard. He disorients, he befuddles, he unnerves, he leaves people confused. And eventually, in his own good time, he leads them into the truth. Or he trusts that they'll be led into the truth. And thus, he's often speaking indirectly, cryptically. Why does he do this? He does this because he intends to provoke us into reevaluating the most basic assumptions. A good teacher can't do anything more for you than that. To get you to question the stuff that you never question. And so disoriented, Nicodemus takes Jesus literally. Remember, he has not domesticated the concept of being born again the way we have. Right? He doesn't tie it to raising your hand at some crusade or a rally or signing up a card. Right? For him, it's not an evangelical slogan. To him, it's a, it's a complete mystery. How can a man be born when he's old? What are you talking about? Nicodemus is a literalist. Surely he can't enter in, into a, a second time into his mother's womb to be born. The concept presented by Jesus to him is so strange, 
so inaccessible, he's got no tools to grasp it. Maybe a convert to Judaism, Nicodemus would be thinking, could be spoken of as like a newborn child. But how could one born a Jew need rebirth? Aren't Jews already born as the chosen people of God? And so in verse 5, Jesus repeats himself only with a little new vocabulary, which I don't think makes it any easier for Nicodemus to grasp. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. So, so far, Jesus has hit Nicodemus with four concepts. You have to be born from above or born again or born of water or born of the Spirit. And by water and Spirit, he's saying to Nicodemus, you need to be cleansed. You need to be washed. You need Wholesale renewal and transformation by the Holy Spirit. And the key background reference for our Lord's utterance comes from Ezekiel 36. Where the prophet says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness. I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your heart of flesh. And I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Cause you to walk in my judgments, my statutes. So Ezekiel foresees this coming new age, this time of a new covenant, in terms of water and the Spirit. This is what it means for Israel to be restored, to be reborn. This is rebirth in water and Spirit. And it's utterly necessary. It's not optional. You must be born again, Jesus says. Because in verse 6... Flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh in John's gospel means normal human weakness and frailty. So flesh, flesh can give you good genes. Flesh can give you an honorable heritage. It can give you a pleasant personality. It can give you nice social connections. It can give you a host of other gifts. But it's still flesh. It cannot bring the rebirth necessary to enter into the kingdom. And so at the end of verse 6, Jesus says, but the spirit or the breath or the wind gives birth to spirit. So he's simply saying like begets like. There are two orders, Nicodemus. There are two ages and there are two types of people. There's an earthly order and a heavenly order. There's this age and the age to come. There's earthly people and there's heavenly people. Flesh begets flesh. You're born as flesh. You're born into this order. Only the Spirit, who is himself the coming and the power of the new age, only the Spirit can bring this kingdom. So in verse 7 and 8, Jesus tells Nicodemus, he shouldn't marvel or be surprised about what he said about rebirth. This is another thing about Jesus' teaching methodology. First, the person is puzzled. And then Jesus says, well, you shouldn't be puzzled. I don't know why you're puzzled. What are you surprised about? He says, don't. He actually gives him a command. Don't be surprised at this. And then, he, then Jesus, shall we say, clarifies for Nicodemus. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. Now, just put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes, right? You're trying to figure this out, and he keeps shifting the metaphors. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That clears things up for Nicodemus. The Spirit who gives new birth into the kingdom, Jesus is saying, is God. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity. He's sovereign and he's free. He's not a force. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be turned into a commodity. He can't be corralled or chaperoned or evoked as if God were your errand boy. He's like the wind, hidden, mysterious. But his effects are evident just like the effects of the wind are evident. What does this spirit do? He creates a people reborn into the life of the kingdom. This spirit raises people from death to life. Makes them people of the next, the age to come, not people of this age. He makes them participate already in the new creation. Now again, to a Jew, to a rabbi, in good standing, in Israel... This is utterly bizarre and strange. And notice the tension that Jesus leaves Nicodemus with in this text. He gives him nothing to do, really. He says, you must be. You must be born again. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. Jesus then goes on to say, and the spirit by which you must be born again, that spirit does whatever he wants whenever he wants, wherever he wants, and is in no way subject to you or your control. Think of how puzzling this is. You must be born again, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, so it's no wonder that in verse 9, Nicodemus says this. How can this be? Like, Jesus, we're like, we're like a few minutes deep into this conversation, and it's not getting a lot clearer for me. And then Jesus, and this is tough love here. He says, you're Israel's teacher. You are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? You know, Jesus does not have a lot of sympathy for Nicodemus' ignorance here. And I'll say why in a minute. Jesus is a demanding teacher, especially to those who present themselves to him as teachers. You want to have a rabbi-to-rabbi talk? Let's have one. How come you don't know this? Jesus thinks, he thinks, now get this, I don't know if you've noticed, but the Old Testament, that first part of your Bible, it's fat. Like it's thick. There's a lot of words in it. And a lot of books. And the books are hard. And Jesus thinks that Nicodemus, as a rabbi, should have grasped the significance of all the washings and all the purifications in the Old Testament. He should have understood Ezekiel 36, the text I just read. Surely you're all conversing with Ezekiel 36, right? This would never happen to us in this conversation. He should have grasped from the vision In the valley of dry bones of the breath or the wind of Yahweh quickening the bones that Israel needs to undergo death and resurrection. He should have understood that circumcision points to a new heart in Deuteronomy 30. He should have understood the newness of the new heart and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. He should have understood that salvation has always been by water 
from the story of Noah's flood and from the Red Sea crossing. It's not enough, Nicodemus, to know all your Bible verses if they're bouncing around in your head like marbles and you have no way to architect them together, to unpack them. You should know this, Nicodemus. All these cryptic references from Jesus, Nicodemus is puzzled and Jesus' response is, What? You're a teacher in Israel and you don't know this? You know, you can know your whole Bible and still not know what it's about. And that's what Nicodemus is at. It's not like he's never heard of Ezekiel 36 or the flood. It's just he has no idea what the significance of the things are. He has no idea where they point. And so in verse 11, Jesus assures him, I'm not offering a rabbinical opinion. Jesus never speculates. He doesn't footnote authorities. He says, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen. Just, again, put yourself in Nicodemus. What, have you seen someone be reborn? Have you seen someone go back? What are you talking about? You speak about what you've seen. Jesus says, I know about the necessity of this new birth and the wind-like mystery of the Spirit firsthand. I speak with it, about it, on absolute authority. And he says at the end of verse 11 that Nicodemus and his colleagues don't receive the testimony. Now Jesus says that Nicodemus' confusion is actually a rejection of his testimony. I testify of what I know, you refuse to receive it. Your ignorance is culpable ignorance, you do not believe. Now the conversation is about the depth of Nicodemus' soul. Finally, there's the biting verse 12. If I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? What, you're having trouble tracking me on this, Nicodemus? I mean, that's what Jesus says. He says, apparently... The current discourse, confusing as it is to Nicodemus, is simple and basic and earthly. Compared to what Jesus could and would later reveal. It reminds one of the text in Hebrews 5, where the author to to the Hebrew Christian says, By this time, many of you should have been teachers. But you need to go back and have the beginning stuff again. Jesus is saying something like that to Nicodemus. This should not be the case, Nicodemus. Now let me say something, just one aside about Jesus' teaching method. He trusts the work of this sovereign spirit he's talking about. This is a, a part, it's built into the way he teaches, because Nicodemus apparently is converted later. He walks away from this conversation almost surely bewildered. And Jesus does not fix that bewilderment. It's not that hard. It wouldn't be that hard to fix it, right? You can do a Sunday school level illustration that a five-year-old can understand about being born again, and they can grasp it in about 17 seconds. It's not like Jesus could not have at least cognitively made Nicodemus grasp the concept of being born again. But he doesn't grasp it, and Jesus keeps moving the ground. But Nicodemus comes in chapter 19 of this gospel to bury Jesus' body with 75 pounds of spices. 
You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying the spirit that I'm talking to you about will work with my word, my puzzling word, my disorienting word even, and it will beget you from above. And that's what happened to Nicodemus. There's no conversion. There's no power in our words without that that resurrection life of the Spirit attending them and making them useful. So that's the work of the Spirit. Second is the Son. Look at verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, even the Son of Man. The point is not that Jesus has ascended already. The point here is that Jesus' origins in heaven. He's, He's from the heavenly councils, and so he can access these mysteries that Nicodemus is baffled by. No one but He, He's saying. The pre-existent Son, the eternal Son, has authority to speak on these things. And so this Jesus has descended, verse 13 says, to reveal the kingdom as the Son of Man. That is Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels. It entails His Messiahship, but also the idea of suffering. Suffering servanthood. And he gives this allusion to the incident in Numbers 21. By the way, the statement there about no one has ascended except the Son who's descended, that baffles modern scholars, so Nicodemus' bafflement would continue. right? And then and Jesus shifts from the, some reference that makes it sound like he's already ascended to Numbers 21 and the serpent being lifted up on the pole. By this point, who knows what Nicodemus thinks? But we know what the Spirit did. So you remember the story in Numbers 21. The Israelites were bitten by serpents. God told Moses to take a serpent of bronze, set it up on a pole. Whoever looked on it was healed. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent or the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Must be. Notice the necessity. You must be born again. Even so, I must be lifted up. This is a reference to Jesus' being lifted up, first on the cross. In John 12, Jesus says, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And John tells us that that was Jesus' way of signifying how he would die. So the cross, for John, is a throne. It's a place of glory and triumph. Jesus ascends to heavenly glory first through the cross. It's a lifting up. And whoever believes on this lifted up Son of Man will have everlasting life. So what's Jesus doing here? He's saying to Nicodemus, there's no mysterious being born again, being born from above, being born of water, being born of the Spirit, without my perfect life and atoning death. The Spirit who begets you from above, Nicodemus, who enables you, To enter the kingdom, it's the spirit of the Jesus who is lifted up on the cross. You'll notice another thing about Jesus' teaching method here. He's going in reverse order. He's going in the order of your experience. You experience the spirit, the spirit draws you to Christ, and through Christ you come to know the love of God the Father. Before the Spirit births you, Nicodemus, this is the logic, I think, of Jesus' teaching here. Before the Spirit births us, the Son must die and be lifted up for us. And prior to that, what happens prior to that? 
brings us to the third point. The great love of the Father. You see that in verse 16. The use of God here. In this text, without any qualification, as is almost always the case in the New Testament, refers to the Father. This here is the Gospel. John 3.16, Luther said in miniature. For God so loved the world. Jesus has moved from the Spirit to His death to the Father's love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten or His one and only Son. Before your rebirth in the Spirit... And before the atoning work of Christ is the magnificent love of the Father. All three persons of the Trinity work together in harmony. It's a mighty harmony of love to save. And this is a love which gives. It's the nature, the very nature of Trinitarian love to to give freely because the Trinity is a community of love. There's already three loving persons in a mutual communion in the triune God. And it's out of that love that he gives his son. That love overflows out to the world. At the very heart of the Christian vision of the world is a communion of self-giving love. You can ask that about any philosophical system. What's at the heart of your vision of the cosmos? The Christian answer to that is a communion of self-giving love. The Father so loved the world that he gave his Son. We must never pit the Father against the Son in the work of the cross. It's the Father who in love provides the sacrifice. And this, by the way, separates the Christian vision of the cross from pagan notions of sacrifice or from uh, notions of sacrifice needing to placate the angry gods. The Father provides the sacrifice, and not only does does He do that, He provides the dearest, most precious sacrifice, His only begotten Son, the Son who is one in being with the Father. The sacrifice provided is one with the God who provided it. But you might recall Abraham had many servants. He was a rich man. God could have asked him to offer one of those servants. But in that wrenching story in Genesis 22 of the offering of Isaac, his one and only son, the unique son of promise, it's a story intended to provoke horror and dread. In Jesus, God offers, He gives His only Son. And there's no stay of execution for Him as there was for Isaac. And so this gift, paradoxical as it might sound, costs God. It costs Him dearly. The Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance used to say, it demonstrates that God loves us more than He loves Himself. Your salvation here is the inner life of God, the inner Trinitarian life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that communion of love flowing out of its infinite perfection, of its infinite fullness out into the world. That's the force of the little word, so. God so loved the world. He loved it out of the unfathomable depths of His being, which is love. 
And notice this gift is given of the Son by the Father because he loved the world. The Jews were quite prepared to say God loved Israel. But love was not used of the world by a first century Jew. He loves Israel. God loves the world. It's important to remember that. The whole glorious mangled spectacle of people and things. God loves the world. It's a mess. It's a disaster. It, you know, it reminds me of Pascal's description of, the, of man. He speaks of the grandeur and the misery of man. God loves the grandeur and the misery of the world. And he's demonstrated that love. He's demonstrated the extent of that love. The love of God, in other words, on Holy Trinity Sunday, that you see in the cross, is a love which recedes back, which is rooted in the infinite depth of the being of the infinite God who is love. That's how he loves the world. And he intends to remake the world. Verse 17 makes this clear. For the Father did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The Father's desire is to save the world. should be our desire to see that come to pass as well. I think it's helpful here to think of the world as a diseased tree. The whole tree, this text is saying, is going to be restored and beautified. It will be a glorious, saved tree. It does not entail that every leaf or every branch or every piece of bark is going to be part of the new tree. But there's going to be a glorious new tree. God's going to heal and save the world. That's why he sent his son. So the father, in infinite love, gives the son who in unutterable agony is lifted up on the cross that we, gloriously born from above, resurrected by the Spirit, might look to Him and live. Your salvation is the mighty work of the one undivided God, the Holy Trinity. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.